Hello, and welcome to Off Our Next, a podcast about women in the law. I'm your host, Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. Off Our Next is derived from a quote from the abolitionist Sarah Grimke. She was born in 1792 and worked to end slavery. She fought for women's rights. And one of her famous quotes, which inspired this podcast, was, I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks. My guest today is Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein, an assistant professor of social medicine at UNC Chapel Hill, as well as a core faculty member in the UNC Center for Health Equity Research. She received her PhD in community research and action at Vanderbilt University and completed her postdoctoral fellowship at Brown University. Dr. Brinkley Rubenstein's research focuses on how incarceration can impact health outcomes. We will be discussing her recent article in North Carolina Policy Watch, co-authored with Brandon Garrett, titled, We Must Act Now to Prevent an Epidemic in North Carolina's Prisons and Jails. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thanks for having me, Jen. So full disclosure, you are my best friend and one of the most brilliant minds in the United States. So I just wanted to throw that out there that I'm completely biased about your work. I think it's wonderful. Um, you're amazing. That's very <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> so, so we both have an interest in incarceration. You from the public health perspective and me from the legal practice perspective. So before we get into this article in NC Policy Watch, um, can you talk a little bit about what drew you to this type of work? What made you interested in that intersection of public health and incarceration? Sure. Um, okay. So um, I think I have a pretty twisted path to where I ended up. Um, you know, you knew me way back when at Western Kentucky University. And um, while there, I majored in criminology. Neither of my um, parents uh, went to college. And so when I went to college, I don't really know what I was doing, but I did know that I liked um, like those pretty awful um, murder mysteries, right? So we're big fans of Law and Order uh, SVU, or if I don't know if you're oh, not Law and Order. How how yeah. many years have we discussed Law and Order? <laughs> I don't know how how long has it been on twenty one years. So yeah. That long? Uh, yeah. So for a long time, you know, I studied criminology. I thought I would be an FBI agent. I moved to New York um, after undergrad and. Um, applied to work at the FBI and had an interview to um, work in a surveillance van that went very poorly. And, <laughs> um, and then I sort of knew that I shouldn't work for the FBI. And at the same time, I um, got a master's degree at the City University of New York in criminal justice policy and worked um, at the Vera Institute of Justice. And I worked on a project that um, was looking at um, HIV outcomes for children that were in the foster care system system in New York City. And um, that was the first time I really started to see the intersection of health and incarceration. And I um, really, you know, started to think about what are the levers that can be pulled to um, make people care about this really um, racist and um, uh, unequal system. And I started to think about the fact that if we could convince people that 
incarceration has a long-term effect on people's lives um, and can shorten their lifespan and affect all these social determinants of health um, that we know incarceration negatively affects. Maybe that's one way that we could really make a difference. And so that's sort of the twisted way that I, that, that I got to, to the topic that I study now. And so was it during your time at Vanderbilt that you really started to hone in on that intersection as well? Yeah. And so so when I moved back from New York, I moved to Nashville and I worked at the public health department for a while and I continued the threat of doing HIV research, but really was still interested in that intersection of health and incarceration. That certainly played a role. Um, people who have been incarcerated have a three times higher um, prevalence rate of HIV. And so really continued to follow that interest. And um, when I started to look at this intersection of health and incarceration, I didn't really neatly fit into any discipline anymore. You know, I wasn't really a, a true sociologist or criminologist, and I didn't have any public health training really um, before that job. And so at Vanderbilt, I got the degree in community psychology or community research and action because it is truly um, very interdisciplinary. And so that's what drew me to, to Vanderbilt. And then that's where, like you said, I was really able to focus in on, um, you know, how is incarceration a structural determinant of health and um, how can we use the study of incarceration to decarcerate America? And do you find that that is something like that's a connection that a lot of just everyday citizens don't either don't know, um, aren't really educated about is that all of those outcomes from from incarceration, all of those health outcomes. Is that just something that that we're just missing either in um, reporting in the media or or is it more just a general apathy um, because these are inmates and, you know, it's not our problem? I think it's a mix of both. I think that there's this general misconception that incarceration is something that happens at a discrete period of time. And once it's over, the impact of it is over and people should can't should and can continue to live their lives as they had before. Um, but those of us who study it know that that's not true. You know, there's state and federal policy that restricts um, the access to certain types of things once you um, have certain type of charge. And so, um, you know, certain people who've been incarcerated no longer have the right to vote. They no longer have the right to certain um, housing certain types of jobs. Um, incarceration also impacts um, social supports, family relationships. Um, and so I think it's both that people think this discrete thing of incarceration exists and that people deserve to be there. And when they're there, they're doing their time. And when they're released, that's the end of it. And then I also think there is just a general unawareness of the fact that people don't have access to the same things um, that they tended to have, um, you know, before a history of incarceration. Yeah, I was just actually earlier today watching a documentary on Brian Stevenson, and he said something about, you know, you can have a conviction that that, you know, is merited. Um, but then you can have an unjust sentence. And I, th I think a lot of people don't understand the distinction between both of those. Right. Um, but it's an important, it's an important distinction. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I could, we could go all the way back to the question of 
of why are certain things crimes, right? And and Brian talks about this to some degree too. Um, and so it, we have these inequalities that exist throughout the system. We have the fact that um, substance use and mental health have been highly criminalized um, in America and that a majority of people who find themselves in local jails and state prison systems have substance use disorders or mental health disorders. Um, and then we also have, you know, we have real serious issues around length of sentence for these really low level minor, um, you know, quote unquote crimes that could be better addressed using a public health solution. And so, you know, it is not rational to me to have someone who is serving a 20 year sentence for a substance use related crime. Right, right. And I think there's also that disinformation that inmates, oh, well, they're getting services or they're getting programming in jails and prisons. But how often does that actually occur? Have you found? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. And it um, it's highly variable. You know, every jail you've been in is different than every other jail you've ever been in. Um, so there are some systems that are highly resourced and people do have access to good programming, good prevention, good healthcare. Um, but in a majority of prison and jail systems, um, access to these kinds of things are really limited. You know, there's um, a court case, um, Estelle versus Gamble, that says that not providing health care to um, people who are incarcerated is um, against the Eighth Amendment. And so people who are incarcerated do have um, the constitutional right to health care, and it should meet the community standard. But I, in my experience, it, it rarely, rarely does. Um so, you know, so sometimes you hear people say, oh, people try to get incarcerated because it's so great in there and they have all these <laughs> No one I've ever talked to, and I've talked to a lot of people, has ever said that. No one wants to be in a facility removed from their family, removed from their community, stripped of their freedom um, because, you know, they get certain access to things that they don't have in the community. And rarely that's just not even the case. Okay, so I found your article to be... Um, really spot on in identifying issues that states will face or, or really are currently facing um, with COVID-19 as it infiltrates prisons and jails across the country. So in the article that you and Brandon um, have written, you advocate for a very rapid response uh, to COVID-19, basically that it needs to happen in a matter of days, um, not months, not weeks. Um, so what are some of the harm reduction strategies that states can implement uh, for prisons and jails as they respond to this COVID-19 pandemic? Thanks for this question. I think um, jails and prisons are really the epicenter of the COVID-19 um, pandemic. If we look at Rikers Island as an example, um, the rate of infection at Rikers Island last week um, was five times the infection rate of New York City. And if we look at it this week, it's nine times the infection rate of New York City. And I think it will be even higher if we look next week. And so all jails and prisons have, um, you know, been responsive in some ways to this. They're all very worried about what it might mean, um, not if, but when COVID-19 enters their facilities. Um, and there are a number of reasons why 
um, jails and prisons are um, particularly um, uh, bad places to be um, in the context of COVID-19. And so the first is that um, jails um, in prisons have very particular built environments. Um, and that is, um, when I say built environment, I really just mean the actual design and architecture of the facility. Um, many jails and prisons have dormitory style living that's very congregational. Um, and so there's an inability to practice social distancing. Um, there's also um, sometimes little access to free soap or hand sanitizer. Usually people have to buy that out of the commissary. Um, and um, there's also um, some barriers to seeking treatment. Most um, correctional facilities have um, medical copays that people have to pay in order to see a doctor. And so um, as far as think, p- things people can do related to um, the built environment, um, one is um, provide soap and hand sanitizer for free. The second is to suspend those medical copays. Some ideas around um, social distancing might include um, having people um, who, you know, you usually have to line up for medline a couple times a day to go get your meds from the medical um, part of the facility. You can institute that a rule that says that people have to um, be six feet apart as they're standing in line, or you can start to deliver medications to people's cells or to them individually. Um, And then the other thing that we've seen jails in particular um, really take on and embrace in a kind of progressive way is to let people out. And they prioritize certain um, populations to be let out. So those are people who are pretrial detainees um, who are mostly there just because they can't pay bail. Um, And they've also been prioritizing people who have other chronic conditions or um, are elderly. Um, The prison systems uh, have you know, been interested in doing this. Um, but it's harder in, in many ways for prison systems to let people out because they often have to go, um, through a parole board. But the things we can do is let people out, suspend medical copays, provide soap, um, engage in social distancing as is possible. And then the other thing that I've really been on a soapbox about this week is, um, we need public health systems and medical systems in the cities and states that these facilities are in to really partner with them to get robust testing in the door. Most of the correctional facilities that I know either don't have access to testing or they have access to testing and it's taking about a week to get um, the results back, which really renders them useless. And so jails and prisons need testing and they need those results in four hours so they can rapidly make decisions. So in terms of the the jails that you have seen, um, you know, letting people out, what kind of criteria do you find is uh, most consistent amongst those jails? Yeah. So what I've seen, um, it's usually people who are in jails awaiting trial, but they haven't, um, they haven't been sentenced yet. And this has really been because a lot of the court systems have closed or are really delayed too. Um, and so we've seen a lot of, um, uh, district attorneys say, okay, we're not going to hold people here just because they um, can't pay bail. And this is, in, there's been a movement toward this um, in general anyway. We've seen cash bail reform um, happen in a lot of local jails across the country. And so there has been a willingness to prioritize those folks for release. And then it's also been um, 
people who are sick and um, are really, really vulnerable to um, getting COVID and getting it severely. Um, and then people who are sort of over the age of 60. Um, I've also seen um, some district attorneys reviewing case by case to look at people who are who are sentenced but have really low-level offenses and then prioritizing those people for release as well. So is that the type of policy that you would recommend to uh, prosecutors in North Carolina in terms of, you know, looking at the offender and making that decision? You know, they have to kind of balance that line between protecting public safety um, but also hoping to avoid a public health crisis. Yeah. So would, would that be the type of policies that you would encourage prosecutors to use is to look at the elderly or those who um, are just in on cash bail, pretrial detainees, those type of individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. You bring up something that is really fraught. And I think a lot of people that are on my side of things tend to um, – you know, be these like abolitionist advocates who are like, oh, close the jail, you know, um, <laughs> you do have to really um, temper that with reality. And the fact that prosecutors have um, difficult decisions to make. Um, and if something were to go wrong, and the jail was to release someone who then went on to um, threaten public safety in some way, um, that they would get a, a lot of bad press, and that would be on them. So it, these decisions are really difficult. So just want to acknowledge that. Um, but I think you're exactly right. So the, so those are the folks that I would prioritize people who, um, have low level offenses that maybe are, you know, substance use or mental health related. They're not violent in nature. Um, and then people who are awaiting, um, awaiting trial, people who have severe other illnesses, um, and compromised health. And then the other folks, um, that the prison system in particular could look at releasing are people who only have a couple of months left on their sentence or are already engaging in, um, sort of like work release programs or, you know, sort of are halfway there to being released anyway. Um, so I think, um, yeah, those are the people that I would advocate um, you know, thinking about first. Yeah. And talking about work release. So a lot of jails and prisons use that type of programming for their inmates. And your article mentions that in North Carolina, there are prisoners still working in poultry plants. Why is this a concern from the public health perspective? Right. So one of the main reasons why I think the public should care about um, these facilities is not just because um, people who are in them are at risk, but also because um, if jails and prisons are incubators for COVID-19 and there's rapid transmission and those folks are also, um, you know, still coming out into the community, then there's also going to be community spread. This is also why it's important to target jails in particular, because there's such um, such high level of churn in jails. There was an article in the New York Times that came out a couple of days ago that said 200,000 people churn through jails every single week. Um, and if you think wow. about them being in these um, environments that are really vectors for disease and then getting exposure and coming back out to the community, um, then the community's at risk too. And so I think that same logic applies to work release. I just, on that note, I wanted to say that your article brings up a good point that I wanted to quote um, because you all are quoting a former New York city corrections administrator who says, 
Um, nobody has invented a more effective vector for transmitting disease than a city jail. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a connection that a lot of people are missing is, is not the fact that, yes, this is, this is terrible for the inmates involved. You know, they're kind of in this trapped situation. That's not always the case. Lots of times they are in the community on these work release programs. That's right. And if you think about um, correctional officers, right, you can apply that same logic to them. You have correctional officers who, and other administrators in jails and prisons and the medical staff who works there too. And those folks are also going into these settings, becoming exposed and coming back out to the community. And so there's two issues. There's the issue of, um, you know, protecting the people who are inside of jails and prisons. And there's also the important aspect of it that's, you know, protecting the community at large as well. Do you think that, you know, if we can convince prosecutors or, um, you know, jailers and wardens and lawmakers um, about this, this need to, um, you know, release pretrial detainees or maybe stop incarcerating low level misdemeanor offenders, um, really look at, what the criminal justice system is doing. Do you think we will have turned a corner at the end of this pandemic in terms of um, having some success with criminal justice reform? Could this be an impetus for that? Yeah. So I think when I get really depressed about, you know, having a global pandemic (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, just how, um, you know, the jail and prison populations are the first to be marginalized. I do, you know, rely on this hope that I have related to the fact that we have been able to, in this emergency, get prisons and jails to engage in the kind of progressive reform we've been dreaming about, right? And so we actually, I actually have a new article coming out in the American Journal of Public Health in the next 10 days, where we we kind of muse on this exact idea, really hoping and making the case for um, progressive criminal justice reform after COVID-19. Um, so you know, I I think it's pretty amazing that, you know, jails have released lots and lots of people and society did not explode. Um, And we're all here to live. We live through it. And there is this um, opportunity we have here to prove that we don't need to be incarcerating so many people. Um, And so my hope is that, yeah, this is a a way to start a conversation for even more progressive change. Um, But I also sometimes have darker moments where I think, um, you know, there's probably a pretty good chance we could just snap back to what we've always known. Um, So I think it, you know, I'm not sure. We'll have to see what happens. Um, But I do hold out hope that we've opened the door. Yes, there's a there's a sliver of light coming through, I think, (laughs) through that doorway. So, okay, before we leave, what else are you working on now other than being uh, super busy with COVID-19 responses? What other projects are you are you working on? You know, my like the frame that I always tried to put on my work is that incarceration is a structural determinant of health um, and an exacerbator of um, health inequalities. And um, so, 
we just put out our special issue of the American Journal of Public Health earlier this year. And so we've been trying to get people to read that. Um, yeah. And then, I've read it. Yeah, Very good. good. I'm glad. I have, <laughs> I have 800 copies in my office, so I'll send you a box. Um, <laughs> um, well, whenever you can get back to your office, you yeah, can start distributing those. <laughs> exactly. In August, I'll send you that box. And, um, yeah. And then I'm also doing a lot of um, opioid use, overdose prevention in jails in particular, and um, continuing the long thread of doing HIV treatment and prevention work among people who um, are in community reentry. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the program. I thoroughly enjoyed our time together, as I always do. And thank you for listening to Off Our Next. See you next time.